Even in the family or among friends, you know, when you talk about money, that's where the friendship or the solidarity ends. And here we were talking about very serious amounts of money. So the discussions were very complicated and trust was thin on the ground, trust between member states, notably about those who said, okay, well, you can say whatever you like, but if somebody calls us on that statement, we will have to foot the bill and not you. Welcome back to In the Room, a series of conversations with policymakers who witnessed and shaped the recent history of the European Union. With a population of just 640,000, Luxembourg is a country the size of Bristol or Las Vegas. Yet this tiny grand duchy has always punched well above its weight in Europe. It was one of the six founding members of the post-war communities and is home to the Union's Supreme Court, its Development Bank and its sovereign bailout fund. Of the European Commission's 13 presidents, Germany, France and Italy have sent two, the UK one, Luxembourg sent three. And of these, one stands out. By the time he stood down to run for the Commission presidency in 2013, Jean-Claude Juncker had already been Prime Minister of Luxembourg since 1995 and concurrently Finance Minister since 89. Small can be very convenient. His tenure meant that he sat almost uninterrupted as a member of the European Council, the summit of heads of state and government, for nearly a quarter century. And on top of that, he was elected and re-elected President of the Eurogroup, the Committee of Eurozone's Finance Ministers, from 2005 to 2013. This was the eye of the financial storm. And throughout, his right-hand man was Georges Heinrich, a Scottish-trained economist. Georges joined the Finance Ministry in 2001, became Juncker's Eurogroup gatekeeper four years later, sat on the powerful EU Economic and Financial Committee and Euro Working Groups, serving as their Vice President during the most acute phase of the crisis between 2010 and 2012. In 2014, after Juncker had moved on, Georges and two other senior officials quit after a dispute with their new minister. So we met at Banque du Luxembourg, where he's been Director and Secretary General for the past eight years. Still a youthful 51, he had just done a 75-kilometer all-night trail run in Germany, and he still feels the excitement, exhaustion, and frustrations of the crisis years. So here he is. I bring you Georges Heinrich. So can we begin with some background, where you came from, why you chose Scotland for your studies, and how you got into the policymaking world? Yes, certainly. My background, in terms of training, I'm a trained economist, so I studied economics. You said I graduated eventually, let's say, from Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland, with a PhD in economics. Started out here in Luxembourg, then went to Belgium to the University of Namur. At first, when I started my studies, I was a little bit ambivalent between business or, as we say, hardcore economics. And I was actually more interested in management business. So I wanted to become a manager. And while here in Luxembourg and in Belgium, also in France, it's a little bit the same. In the first few years of the university curriculum, you have lectures on both orientations as it's, it's economics, both for business and say like the more theoretical economics. 
And I quickly realized that business wasn't exactly, in terms of the lectures, what I was more interested in. I had more penchant for things like macroeconomics, microeconomics. Also discovered a little bit like the policy relevance of especially macroeconomics. And then when the time for specialization came, I decided to do pure economics, as they call it in Belgium. And that's also, that's when you realize that you're part of a little bit of a fringe movement because about three quarters of the students in our year decided to do business, but one quarter decided to do economics. So you end up in smaller groups. The interaction is nicer because you get to know your co-students better and differently. Yeah, well, then uh, I graduated in Namur with my undergraduate degree. And I said to myself, well, if you want to work as an economist, then undergraduate obviously is not enough already at the time. As I mentioned, I developed this interest in policy. And so I said, well, if you want to be involved in policy, you need to enhance your toolbooks a little bit. So I decided that I wanted to move to the UK for a postgraduate degree, and looked at various destinations, potential destinations in the UK. Didn't really want to move to London because it didn't seem to me like a destination where you would want, I mean, London is probably cool, certainly for a weekend, for a week, probably even for a year. But when you make the choice for a postgraduate degree and the PhD, you need to find a place where you think you will be comfortable for four or five years. And I didn't think that was the case for London. So I looked at other places. And I came across this program in Scotland, which is called, I don't know actually if it still exists, but at the time it was called the Scottish Doctoral Program in Economics, which is a program for the eight major universities in Scotland that kind of combined their resources so the first year is taught MSc, which back in the day was taking place in Glasgow. And then after one year, you choose for your PhD, you choose a professor in one of the eight universities who will accompany you on your research work. And then you go to that university to finish your degree. So yeah, well, move to Glasgow. So uh, was that a culture shock? I'd been on a holiday to Scotland a few years before. Obviously, like most people who go to Scotland, completely loved it, fell in love with the place, fell in love with Edinburgh. We'd not been to Glasgow on that trip. And so the day I arrived in Glasgow, yes, let's, yeah, a little bit of a culture shock. Actually, a shock, even not just a culture shock, a little bit of a shock because with my then girlfriend, now wife, we were driving up the, I think it's the M7 through Carlisle, then across the border in the famous hamlet of Gretna Green. And then you drive slowly into Glasgow on a gray and miserable Sunday afternoon. And well, the first buildings you see are not exactly very nice. Discovered the university residences. It's like, okay, yeah. So then went to the shop talked to the first shop assistant. She replied something to me. I was looking at my wife and I said, yeah, what language is she speaking? So took a little while to understand the locals. Took a little time also to make Glasgow grow on you. But actually, once it has grown on you, it's actually a very nice place, very cool place, a lot of stuff happening, 
very interesting place. And now with hindsight, in many ways, I'd say that I much preferred my time in Glasgow to the time in Edinburgh because it's quite different, the two cities, but really Glasgow has a very nice feel about it. It's much more authentic. It's authentic Scotland, which you cannot really say for Edinburgh, which is more like living in a museum with lots of tourists coming to visit. Yeah. So after my MSc in Glasgow, I moved to Edinburgh, not to the University of Edinburgh, but to Harriet Watt University, which at the time had a research center on economic transformation. So here we're talking about the mid-1990s. So that was the period of what we called back in the day called transition economics. So the transition from formerly centrally planned economies to market economies following the, well, the downfall of the Soviet Union and the liberalization of Central Europe. And so that was a topic I had taken keen interest in at the time. So it seemed natural to move to that research center. So I found a professor there who would take me under his wings so I could do my doctoral research there. And yes, so in 2000, actually, I graduated from Harriet Watt University, PhD in economics. And then I looked at the possibilities that the job market had to offer. First, I was a little bit tempted by staying in research, staying in academia, because it is a nice life. It is Academia is obviously intellectually very stimulating. Staying on for a few years in Scotland, there's certainly worse places to live than Scotland. But my wife had then moved back to Luxembourg. She found a job in Luxembourg. And well, then when you compare say, in pure economic terms, the benefits of staying in academia in Scotland and moving back to Luxembourg on, say, purely economic and materialistic grounds. The choice is fairly clear. So I moved back to Luxembourg, moved first to a research center here in Luxembourg, which is carrying out research on income distribution, social policy, labor market issues, so I worked there for a year, and then I saw an ad in the newspaper that Ministry of Finance here in Luxembourg were looking for somebody with some more quantitative skills, and I thought that fit well with my profile, so I applied. I set the entry exam into the Luxembourg Civil Service, which I passed, and then, well, yes, I went to a couple of interviews at the Ministry of Finance, and I got the job offer. And so in May 2001, I think I entered the Luxembourg Ministry of Finance as a lowly civil servant. And yes, so that's how it all started. So, and it was fairly quick from that to getting into the world of policy and policy discussions and being promoted to work with the finance minister. Could you talk us through that process? Yes. Well, the Luxembourg Civil Service back in the day, so we're talking in early 2000s, was, as the Ministry of Finance especially, was quite a small undertaking. The, the ministry itself, I mean, if you look at, the, say, the total area of competences, it's quite a big ministry, but it's big because there are three large administrations, the tax administrations that have a lot of employees working for them, there are various other administrations that functionally link to the Ministry of Finance, but the ministry proper 
was actually a very small scale affair. So among the, say, the higher civil servants that were then also called upon to prepare material, briefing material for the ministers, attend policy relevant meetings here in Luxembourg or in Brussels, I was only about, I'd say, 25 to, well, not even 30 people that were covering all these issues. So obviously, when you join that fairly small pool of people, quite clearly, you're very rapidly exposed to policy-relevant material much more quickly than you would be in an administration in countries with much bigger civil service, like in the UK. I think time from when you get hired to the time you see the minister for the first time could be several years. In Luxembourg, the first day you join the ministry, first thing that happens is that in the morning at nine o'clock, the minister actually wants to see you because he wants to know the people that actually work in the ministry because there's not that many. So again, it's a more familiar atmosphere than maybe elsewhere. So, well, yes, like I said, I joined the ministry in 2001 with an orientation for more kind of beefing up the analytical capacities of the ministry, working on data issues, analyzing revenue data, tax data, got first exposures to the European side of policy affairs by becoming a member of the EFC subcommittee on statistics, for instance, working on several commission working groups on tax indicators and things like that. And then the first real exposure with the domestic, strong domestic component, but also a strong European component was that I was asked to take the lead on preparing the annual update of the Luxembourg Stability Program. I'd never heard of the Stability Program and Stability and Growth Pact before that. So I looked at the relevant texts, the treaty. The, well, obviously at university, I'd heard something about the 3%, 60%, so I could situate that a little bit, but I didn't know about all these regulations and all that. So I, You learned to love them later. Didn't I, you? Uh, it was a love affair which uh, <laughs> continued until the end, and which is still ongoing today, I discover. When I read the Euro news feed, yes, so that's when I started working on those issues. And then you were picked to be a liaison for Jean-Claude Juncker. Yes. Yeah. Then in the autumn of 2004, there was an informal ECOFIN in Skiveningen under the Dutch presidency. And that's where the decision was taken to give to the Eurogroup a proper head, so the presidency of the Eurogroup. Jean-Claude Juncker had been elected or designated by his peers to become this first chairman of the Eurogroup. But at the time, well, it was first president of the Eurogroup. So it was more meant like a symbolic gesture, somebody to take care of the Eurogroup. The Eurogroup didn't have, it was an informal body, so it didn't have any institutional existence proper in the Brussels framework. It didn't have any staff. So when this function was created, okay, there's obviously the council secretariat, which provides support as the secretariat of the Economic and Financial Committee, which provides support but they are all in Brussels. And then Jean-Claude Juncker said, okay, but I want somebody in Luxembourg who you know, deals with the daily issues because when people want to talk to me about various issues, preparing the meetings and so on and so forth, I will obviously not set the agenda, green light the agenda, take micromanagement decisions about this and that. And so he said to the then Luxembourg EFC member, Jean Gill, then the director of the treasury, Jean, 
we need somebody in uh, ministry's team who will become that liaison officer. And so the following day, Jean Gil calls me into his office and said, mm, well, yeah, there's not that many bodies here in the ministry that I can choose from. And, you know, most of them have lots of work. So I don't really see asking any of the more senior people because they just don't have the time to do that. You're more junior, obviously, you know, in terms of loss incurred, if you do a little bit less of what you do currently and a little bit more of something else, it will remain manageable for the ministry. So how about it? I didn't have any idea of what I was signing up for. It all sounded a little bit obscure to me. And so, oh, okay, okay, why not? Yeah, so that was the beginning of that. So you were effectively the gatekeeper for the Eurogroup chairman, and you became an observer on the Euro Working Group and the EFC. Is that right? Yes. Practically, you mentioned the observer part. So indeed, the Eurogroup president wanted somebody of his team to be involved in the preparation. So that would mean that I would be allowed to attend the Eurogroup Working Group meetings, and I would be allowed to participate in the Eurogroup meetings. The meetings, as I mentioned before, are prepared by the Council Secretariat and by the EFC Secretariat. And so I was also the liaison officer to discuss issues, the agenda, the follow-up to the meetings, preparation of the meetings, obviously, organized preparatory meetings, but also liaise with various capitals if they had any issues of, say, euro area relevance that they wanted to discuss with the president or with one of the secretariats. Yes, yeah, so I was kind of the single point of contact, if you... Back in the day, if somebody asked for the phone number of the Eurogroup, well, they would be given mine. I couldn't take any decisions, but at least I knew who to talk to. Yeah, so that's how it worked. And obviously, like I say, it was 2005. I had four years of professional experience of the ministry in the Ministry of Finance. I was early 30s, so it's not exactly a very seasoned combatant. And on the other hand, I was obviously liaising with the secretariats, but I was also liaising with much more senior people like the president of the EFC, other high-placed civil servants. And it was not in their habit to discuss these kinds of issues with junior civil servants, but they were accustomed to speaking to ministers. And so the first few months, I tried to get hold of Jean-Claude Juncker to discuss these issues with him. But besides being president of the Eurogroup, he also had a country to run. And so he had to manage his time carefully. And so actually he said to them, and he also said to me, you know, I don't really have the time to take care of all these issues. So when I asked for somebody to be the liaison officer, I also expected that person to take care of all this business and only inform me about really the points that require management attention or that require presidential attention. You must have been 10, 20 years younger than... Now, most yes. of the officials, yeah, most of the officials on the group at the time. But you eventually you became vice president of the EFC. When was that? In two thousand nine or two thousand and ten. Yes, okay. I became vice president. So I started, like I said, I started attending the meetings, the Eurogroup working group meetings in two thousand and five, and in two thousand and nine, my well boss until then, Jean Gill, became director general of the Luxembourg financial sector supervisor, CSSF, and 
I became director of the treasury. The director of the treasury is also the representative, or was at the time, the Luxembourg representative in the EFC EWG. So that was kind of officializing my informal status, status or position that I had been holding in that group. So I became a full member. And yes, I can't remember exactly. I think it's probably in 2010 or in two, probably in 2010 or early 2011 when the question of the vice presidency came up. I don't recollect exactly how it went, but since I'd effectively been around for quite a while, since 2005, I had a lot of official and unofficial, mostly unofficial tenure in that committee. People knew me because usually the EFC is, is a committee which does have a bit of rotation, not quite as much as the rotation at the ministerial level, but still there's, there's quite a bit of rotation. And so I was just, even though I was a little bit younger than most, I already had quite a lot of experience and tenure on the committee. And so that's how I became vice president. But the vice president is a largely ceremonial position. Although I believe you accidentally became president. Yeah, except that there was a time when it was less ceremonial, in particular in 2011, the second half of 2011. So back in the day, Vittorio Gilli was chairman of the EFC and of the EWG. And being at the same time director of the Italian treasury, you can imagine that in that particular moment, he was busy with quite some other issues, like, for instance, financing the Italian debt, but also for people familiar with the story of the sovereign debt crisis, it was also quite a tumultuous period for Italian politics. So very often, Vittorio would call me at the very last moment and would say, Josh, I have to go to an important meeting, which has just been called by my minister or the prime minister. Can you please stand in and chair the EFC meeting or the EWG meeting? So actually, in that period, the workload increased quite significantly. And then I remember one Sunday evening in December of 2011, when at eight or nine o'clock in the evening, my phone called and it was Vittorio. And he said to me, well, as you know, there's government change in Italy, which is being prepared. Mario Monti will become prime minister. And he has asked me to assume responsibility for the finance portfolio. At first, he didn't become, if I recollect correctly, full-fledged minister of finance, but he was kind of the deputy mm. minister, but was... If I remember correctly, I think Monty assumed himself yeah. the responsibility for the finance portfolio, but asked, obviously, Vittorio to take charge of the ministry and look after the daily affairs back then. So he said, okay, Mario Monti has asked me to assume that the responsibility for that position, the announcement will be made tomorrow, which obviously means that I will have to step down as a member and president of the EFC. The EFC has a vice president, that's you. So good luck from tomorrow onwards until we find a new chairman of the Eurogroup. It's up to you. That was nice. So in December and Jan so December 2011 until January 2012, I was the acting chairman. Two months, that was quite enough because it was quite a busy period. And it was also... I was providing for the very important institutional transition because Vittorio had been the last 
EWG chairman who was doing that on a part-time basis or while remaining in his national position, so remaining director of the treasury in Italy, and he was chairman of the EFC and EWG. And shortly before, and we had decided that the EFC and EWG would receive a full-time president. The person had already been identified, designated, so is Thomas Wieser, who then at the end of January 2012 became the first full-time president of both committees. Well, and the period in between Vittorio's unexpected departure and Thomas's eventual arrival so I filled the gap during that period. And as I said, it was quite a busy period. So if anyone asks the question, if it is warranted that these committees are chaired by somebody who is doing that full-time, I can quite certainly confirm that that is the case. <laughs> well, I mean, so you came onto the committees in 2005. The first three year, the years of those were relatively uneventful. Then Lehman Brothers crashed. And we went into 2009 and the beginnings that I get the impression that it was here. It was in Juncker's office and at the commission where the Greek crisis was first seen for the potential it, it was going to have. So can you tell us about the preparation for what you thought could develop in Greece during 2009? Actually, Jean-Claude Juncker's tenure as president of the Eurogroup started with a Greek crisis in 2000 and end of 2004, in the autumn of 2004. And well, it was quite premonitory in a way, and maybe the significance of the event was substantially underestimated at the time. This was the time when the scandal about the Greek statistics erupted. Because I still remember that this was one of the first issues that I was asked to deal with. We had meetings with Joaquin Almunia, who was back in the time the commissioner in charge, commissioner also in charge of Eurostat. The discussion at the time or the accusation, which was later substantiated, was that Greece had submitted, let's say, false statistics, false public finance statistics at the time of meeting the entry requirements for the Eurozone, that deficit figures and debt figures had been actually much higher than appeared in the books, and so that the well entry into the Eurozone had been validated by the Eurogroup on false premises. At the time, that was a communication public relations issue, not so much an economic issue. Well, like I said, <laughs> with hindsight, we should have known better because this issue and its full ramifications exploded in our hands in, like you said, in 2009 and 2010. So it, it did come back with a vengeance. But you're right, also the first few years were a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a low-key affair, but in terms of drama, it was relatively low-key. It started out with a lot of drama in 2005. The first semester of 2005 was Luxembourg presidency of the council. That wasn't the reason for the drama. But the reason for the drama was that under this presidency, the council was supposed to reach an agreement on a revised stability and growth pact. So we managed to get that agreement the agreement was reached at the March European Council, and even before the end of our presidency at the end of June, we even managed to get the regulations, finalize the regulations, and even get them published, still with Jean-Claude Juncker's signature as president of the Council under at the bottom line. So yes, that was a lot of drama at the time, a lot of very difficult discussions with Berlin, 
Gerhard Schröder was Chancellor at the time and the German position on public finances, on deficits, was quite different back in the time than now. Actually, completely different. The discussions, to anyone who's following the discussions nowadays and is a fine observer of German positions, you would present them the German positions from back then and they would say, impossible that we're talking about the same country. And then, well, like with all these discussions on governance and public finances, obviously France is a significant player. Italy was also defending a number of very, well, positions with quite a few red lines. Poland already at the time was very vocal on the pensions issue and you had the usual split along council fault lines with those who are a little bit more dovish on public finances and those who are a little bit more hawkish. So it wasn't all that easy to reach a compromise. And I think the compromise that was reached back in the day, so in 2005, received a lot of criticism afterwards, a lot of it justified. But if you take into account the difficulty of reaching an agreement at the time, I think politically it was the message that was being sent by actually being able to reach an agreement was more important to the final detail of that agreement. And even the final detail of that agreement, a lot of it made sense on paper and the problems with it came later when there were a lot of creative political interpretations of what was put on the paper. But say, economically speaking, a lot of it made sense. And what didn't make so much sense, like I said, were a lot of the interpretations or the leeway for interpretation, for creative interpretation that was generated by that. So that was the first big file. Once we had evacuated that, we moved into quieter waters. So much so that I think by 2008, our public finance discussions had moved to a quality which, again, nowadays it is unimaginable that we would talk about such things because the public finances of pretty much all euro area countries had moved to a position close to balance or in surplus. And we were starting to have first discussions about whether we should include on our agenda issues like the running of public finances in good times, how to intelligently use surpluses, things like more academic issues with which very few countries had acquired a genuine experience with. I mean, Luxembourg had been running surpluses for a long time, but the experience of Luxembourg in the matter is not directly transposable to larger countries, but to some extent. But I could say, gladly, we never had to have those theoretical discussions because events intruded, and so everything changed quite suddenly. So from the good times that we thought we were in, also because obviously public finances and the political debate and the political arbitrage had been helped a lot by very favorable cyclical conditions. Some governments, ministers maybe overestimated a little bit their direct personal contribution to these fine performances and maybe underestimated a little bit how much this was due to you know, luck and a favorable cycle. But like I said, then very quickly, the circumstances changed. There were rumors all of a sudden that there could be an issue with the Greek government's ability 
to finance its deficit, speculations about the underlying public finance statistics back at the time of your area application. But still, even after this scandal back in 2005 had been uncovered, there were still doubts about the quality of those statistics. There were questions, open questions about the true extent of the Greek deficit, the Greek debt. And this also very quickly led to the realization that the toolbox available to policymakers in a euro area setup was quite limited to deal with contingencies of the kind we were uncovering then. And in particular, that there was in the treaty a clause which is called the no bailout clause, which you can interpret in various ways or not, but which is very clear and of which, in any case, the then chairman of the European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Trichet, had a very clear reading and a very clear understanding of what that meant in particular for his institution, but also what it meant for the behavior of governments and of ministries of finance. So, yes, we moved from very quiet waters into more turbulent waters quite quickly. And this was obviously a very sensitive topic. It's also very relevant, well, market relevant, let's say, to outsiders. So it was not something which you necessarily want to discuss with what to do if the unimaginable event, if it happens, what to do in those circumstances is obviously not something you want to discuss in a circle of 35 or 40 people because the risk of leaks is just too large. And also, we were a little bit in a brainstorming mode because, like I said, this was not really, there was no handbook on how to deal with these issues. But on the other hand, there was a treaty which said that, you know, among the realm of possible options, some options were clearly not in line with the treaty. So you cannot hold a meeting of 40 or 50 officials that discuss things where there's not even an agreement that you're allowed to discuss this. So, yeah, like I say, it's more like a brainstorming. It, on the one hand, it was difficult to explain that you would be discussing such things given the context that I've just provided. On the other hand, it would have been equally difficult to explain that this was not discussed and there were no preparations going on for that. So either way, you do it or don't do it, you're doomed. There were smaller groupings of people that discussed these issues informally. So what shall we do? What can we do if the unspeakable happens? So these groupings existed at heads level, so ministerial level or institutional level. And then there were also, say, informal discussion groups among civil servants. So at the civil servant level, we started coming up with a number of ideas and then very quickly ran into again, these institutional problems. The setup in which we discussed, there were some member countries were represented and institutions were represented. And we realized very quickly, well, it's the room for maneuver, taking into account the red lines of everybody, the room for maneuver is relatively restricted. Also, because we couldn't imagine, actually, at the time, or didn't want to imagine 
what would unfold later. So it was at that time he was stating those red lines was more of a theoretical issue than a genuine issue where you had to deal with a genuine problem. So it was difficult to make progress because the perception of various people about how serious the issue was, was different and how urgent the issue was. And also, there was initial stress on Greece, but also some initial stress on Ireland already back in the day. There were policy declarations, statements, actions also being, action plans being drawn up by the respective governments. More appropriate noises being made in Dublin. Some of the sometimes less helpful statements being made by politicians in Athens. But then kind of the tensions abated a little bit. And everybody was uh, mightily relieved because we thought, okay, the files, the documents that we've buried very deep in our drawers, we won't be needing them. Yes, and until then, in 2010, we had to open our drawers very wide, take those papers out very quickly again, and become much more creative in offering potential solutions than we had been until then, because what the first iteration seemed like an only theoretical issue then became a very concrete issue. And Greece was then in very acute danger of losing market access. So we had to think about solutions. As I remember at the beginning, so early 2010, the solution seemed to be to go for an amount of money that was essentially what Greece would need to raise, I think, in one year or maybe two years if it was doing its own funding. You ended up having to go with the bazooka, the EFSF, and then the Securities Market Program. Who pushed that idea from the start and who was resistant to that? Was that an American thing? Because that's the approach they'd taken in 2008, 2009. Well, I guess there were two schools of thought. One was, yeah, you could say, do it the American way. Let's put out some large amounts. Let's say, somebody said it a few years later, we will do whatever it takes or read my lips, or whatever. So you make one of those bold statements. You don't say, I put the money on the table, but you say, I will eventually put money on the table. If so you make one of those bold statements, effectively, the markets calm down and the crisis will not occur. And then there was the other school of thought that said, statements like that are not credible because somebody might ask you, show me the money, and we haven't discussed the mechanism for showing the money, we haven't discussed anything, and also some countries worried that if the um, show me the money call comes, that it will be addressed to them in the first instance, and that the burden sharing to show the money will be asymmetric, to call it like that. And then, obviously, from that stems a whole raft of political problems because here you obviously you're not strictly speaking on the territory of European fiscal policy so here you act a little bit outside of the established procedures so all the countries that engage in whatever it is we were discussing you need to involve well you need to get parliamentary approval you need to secure domestic support for this and also here the perception in various capitals was that in some places this was easier to secure than in other places. And so all this meant that the whatever-it-takes approach was discarded. 
that the discussions then went on to, yes, we will help Greece, provided Greece helps itself. This had a certain attraction. This was appealing to some parts, maybe, of the people and institutions listening or observing the euro area. But quite obviously, the appeal of this type of communication and also of this type of policy making, the appeal of that was lost on financial markets. And I think they interpreted these signals as not sufficiently clear. And, well, then one thing led to another. Markets, whoever those famous markets are, but market participants repeatedly asked for more details and ministers, heads of state and government and institutions routinely provided less details than market participants asked for, for good or for bad reasons, because regardless of whether the details were available or not, sometimes they were just not available or had not been discussed. But we entered a cycle, I'd say, of repeated disappointment of expectations of what market participants wished that the Eurogroup would do or would say, and they didn't see it or they didn't hear it. So this cycle lasted for quite a while. And once you're in a logic like that, it is very difficult to get out of it. And I think we try to break this cycle several times with a comprehensive approach and then a very comprehensive approach and then the ultimate comprehensive approach. But effectively, the only thing that worked was when then Mario Draghi stepped up and said a few years later, what probably with hindsight, we should have said in 2010 is whatever it takes, you know, we will solve this problem. You want to see the money. Don't worry about the money. We have the money. This will not become an issue. I think if this had been stated very clearly in 2010, the whole thing could have been contained. The fact that it hasn't been contained, yes, cost a lot of money for everybody, cost a lot of energy, and also led to a great deal of misery and very adverse social impacts, not only in Greece, but in quite a few other countries. And actually, for a genuine, I think what microeconomists call a genuine dead weight loss to everybody, because a lot of money had been spent which might have been spent more wisely and for better causes otherwise. So, yes, this was an interesting episode, which I think with hindsight, obviously one is always better informed and would take better decisions with hindsight. But with hindsight, I think in communication terms, this wasn't handled quite as good as it could have been. And I think we could have saved ourselves a lot of trouble by communicating more shrewdly at the time. I think, as you say, this is easy to have perfect hindsight on this now because nearly all of you did believe that you wanted to keep the Eurozone integral, but a number of you, Germany in particular, the German government at the time in particular, I think didn't trust the European Commission, didn't trust themselves to be able to enforce conditionality on the Greeks, and therefore they weren't, they didn't want to give that guarantee. Was there a way of combining the ultimate guarantee with a workable conditionality for the Greeks and for the other crisis countries? It's true what you're saying. So the issue here, we had an issue of trust at several levels. And it's also true 
even I myself, my own position in the discussions on Greece, I was personally also torn between this issue that some of Greece's troubles, or actually all of Greece's troubles, they brought it upon themselves. I mean, it wasn't the Eurogroup which forced them to do any of these things. I mean, run enormous deficits and forge the numbers. They did that themselves. So that was one issue. And I would also qualify myself rather as a, say, a, maybe not, I wouldn't say I'm a fiscal hawk, but more a fiscal conservative. And yes, that also bothered me personally, this aspect of, okay, so what do we get in return if you ask the community to help you you also have to help yourself. You cannot just ask, we have created a huge problem for everybody else. Now solve the problem for us. You could summarize it a little bit like that. I also had a bit of an issue with that. On the other hand, you have to be aware that, well, this is typically on an issue of huge negative externality for everybody. So the job of the euro area was also to deal with that externality and to make sure that we would find a solution or let's say the if you're discussing at the level of the Eurogroup, your focus or your policy objective must be, say, the welfare of the Euro area. And if in politics and in policy, you're typically in an area of not well, very rarely first best, but second best or sometimes even third best. And then you have to say, okay, at least give consideration to the fact that, okay, Maybe here I do something with respect to Greece, which short-term relinquishes a little bit the fiscal discipline that we ask Greece to exert, but our focus needs to be on the stability of the euro area and the welfare of the citizens in the euro area. And I think here the balance was possibly not struck adequately, also because maybe the perception of the impact, again, of the burden sharing on the various populations in the various member states of the euro area was perceived to be different. There were quite clearly some countries which identified themselves if bailout had to occur as net contributors and others, well, nobody benefits from a situation like that, but at least they would be less impacted and they might potentially even benefit from the added stability that this provides. And so these were the friction lines and yes, when <laughs> I say when even in the family or among friends, you know, when you talk about money, that's where the friendship or the solidarity ends. And here we were talking about very serious amounts of money. So the discussions were very complicated and trust was thin on the ground, trust between member states notably about those who said, okay, well, you can say whatever you like, but if somebody calls us on that statement, we will have to foot the bill and not you. So again, it's all very understandable that we had these discussions, that these arguments were made implicitly or explicitly, also vis-a-vis -vis the commission. It is several times in our discussions, you know, a minister or head of state government said in the discussions, well, you know, it is very nice for the commission to make these statements, but the commission is offering warm words, but no money in this process, because the money will have to come from member states, which again is not completely fair, but it is not completely wrong either. So 
yeah, well, there was a lack of trust between member states, a lack of trust between member states and the institutions during the time of crisis. So in a certain extent, it showed that, let's say, in a crisis mode like this, there's still some homework to be done on, say, the community building, the solidarity issue. Eventually, you can say on a positive note, eventually the right decisions were taken. The solidarity did prevail. Everybody chipped in, but we had very, very long discussions on how to split the bill or whether to do a runner and leave one or two guys at the table who aren't so fit and who will then have to answer to the police or wash up the dishes. So, yeah, it's like in real life when you're mm. confronted to a genuine crisis, the spontaneous crisis response is not so easy. And if you're a group of 15 or 20 decision makers or friends around the table or family members around the table, you know, hammering out a compromise will take some time and the approaches are not always the same. Those of us who were following this very closely at the time, but from outside the room, often thought that you guys had a fiendish strategy going on, 15 side chess and all that kind of thing. I mentioned this to you before and you laughed. So uh, <laughs> did the strategy develop at all? There were numerous strategies. Yes, we changed strategy from time to time. Then sometimes there was confusion about what was tactics and what was strategy. Not everybody had followed the same strategy or the same tactics. But indeed, I remember from some of the discussions I had back in the time, discussions, so actually, actually I was very often rather tight-lipped for precisely the reason on which I'm going to elaborate now. But in some of the, well, let's call it, for the sake of a better word, let's call it discussions or exchanges with members of the press, fine observers of the Eurogroup, this idea that there were some very refined tactics being discussed and very finely choreographed steps of strategy to be deployed in several stages. So very like deep strategy. So then sometimes journalists called me after a meeting and said, ah, oh, okay, I don't really understand the outcome of the last Eurogroup meeting. The only explanation that I can find is that, you know, this minister accepted that because as a trade-off from another member state or another institution, they got a commitment that this was... I listened to that and I said to myself, oh, damn, if only we would have thought of that, that would have made a good story. Because in actual fact, I mean, what happened behind the scenes was much less, say, uh, scientific or orderly or the deployment of a grand scheme or a grand strategy, but it was more haphazard and sometimes, yes, even, I'd say, intellectually a bit frustrating to listen to some of the exchanges. So it was more of, let's make something up and see how it goes than a grand strategy being deployed. I mean, there are obviously some of the key decisions that have been taken, which you could say, okay, that's a real strategic decision which was then also followed up in terms of implementation like i mean the very fundamental decision ready to provide financial assistance the decision to set up efsf and then the esm so these are real watershed moments where genuine decisions were taken but a lot of the more say technical arrangements underlying the big strategic moves their discussions were sometimes like i said a little bit intellectually frustrating. Sometimes you wonder 
where you had ended up with. And I think it's also the fact that to some extent you can understand the underlying motivation, namely we were talking about really, really big amounts of money with potential huge political ramifications. And so ministers didn't feel very comfortable because they are the say well they are accountable to their governments, to their parliaments, to the populations. They are accountable for what is decided there. They didn't feel one hundred percent comfortable to leave all that nitty gritty up to like civil servants like us, the EWG and the EFC unelected bean counters, who then take these huge decisions. So they wanted to get involved in the nitty gritty. Only ministers, uh, I guess in your lifetime, you've met one or two. And that's not saying anything about their character, but they don't have the time for all this nitty gritty. They don't have the patience for it either. Yet they asked for this. And so no wonder it ended up in one or two, a little bit of say, more acrimonious discussions because the topic and the audience don't match spontaneously. <laughs> yeah. So that was a little bit complicated. Again, like I said, I think I can understand the underlying feeling that we're talking about really important issues. So you are accountable and so you want to be involved. But again, here's the issue of trust. You know, just make sure that the people that you actually sent to the meeting have your best interest at heart and let them hammer out the final details of the agreement. This is not ministerial level stuff. Yeah. Well, to wind up, this could be as long or as short as you like to explain, but Something you worked on, as you pointed out, right from the beginning, the reform of the Stability and Growth Pact. You also worked on the drafting of the Fiscal Compact, which is now being unpicked in the latest iteration of the rewriting of the fiscal rules. I mean, looking back, do you think the fiscal rules have worked? And do you have any worries about the way it looks as though the latest reform is going? Have the reforms or has the Stability and Growth Pact worked? I think the answer is quite easy, simple, quite clearly no. Am I surprised about current discussions, for instance? Again, no. It's quite natural that the discussion would uh, resurface. Am I surprised that at the current juncture, we're talking again about making some marginal adjustments to some articles in a regulation, um, the treaty, about what is part of the deficit calculations, what is not. Am I surprised about that? Yes and no. I'm not surprised because I know the process, I know the institutions, I know the people involved. So I'm not surprised that this is discussed. On the other hand, I am surprised that this is discussed because it's quite clear from where we are today that drawing a transition path from where we are now to anywhere near what the treaty says, the 3% and the 60%, and even what is in the regulations and in the fiscal compact, close to balance or in surplus, the transition period is so long, potentially, that I don't know how you can make up this story, the storyline, in any credible way. So, say, as an observer who's, and if I put the institutional side and the political, the political side out of scope, say, this just scrapped the whole thing. It has never been credible. 
now with the position we're in, how do you expect to cook up a reform where these remain the cornerstones or at the minimum important elements of a future agreement? How do you expect anyone to believe that this is of any relevance, political importance, or even that anyone will ever think that this acts as a constraint upon their behavior? It's just put the whole thing in the bin and come up with something with something else. There's just no point in prolonging the agony. Now, of course, the reason why this is not done is that if you start from scratch, it is impossible to say where you will end up. And of course, again, in this debate, you have the more fiscal conservative countries and the more fiscally, say, progressive countries. And the fiscally conservative countries are worried about, okay, at least now we have the 3% and the 60%. And if we open the discussion about that, well, chances are we will end up way more to the, say, depends on where you look at, but definitely with respect to the 3% deficit, the new objective will certainly not be close to balance or in surplus, but it will certainly go the other way. And with respect to the 60% debt criterion, well, the probability that we end up at 100 is closer to 100 than the probability that we will end up with something lower. So quite clearly, this is not a political discussion. This is a risk management strategy that is deployed here and to say, okay, well, let's at least rescue those elements because if we relinquish these elements, we will end up you know, like in a completely different universe potentially than we are now. So politically, I can understand it, but economically, it doesn't make, it just doesn't make any sense. So now then we will make some, you know, some cosmetic changes to this. On top of that, those cosmetic changes will have to be agreed by 27 member states plus the institutions. So even if the starting point was, say, a more fiscally conservative starting point, you have to factor in a certain say, amount or percentage for compromise. And still you end up very far from any position that a true fiscal conservative would say this is fiscally conservative. And then you end up the current situation of public finances and the transition period that you will have to allow for normalization. Plus you put on top of that 10% inflation and the interest rates that go with that and that will eventually also have an impact on the financing, then financing of public debt, well, that's it. That's end of story. So we'll end up with a thing that, yes, will look potentially, or maybe even not, but that will exist on paper, but that will not have any teeth, that will certainly not have more teeth than it had previously, that will have the merit to exist, but that I see very slim chances of this being more credible than anything else. I mean, you mentioned the fiscal compact. The discussions about the negotiations about the fiscal compact fell into this precise period that we alluded to earlier on between Vittorio Grilli and Thomas Visa. So the two months where I had the pleasure and the privilege to chair the Economic and Financial Committee. So when the political decision was taken, I said, okay, well, we gather an interministerial conference to negotiate this treaty. And the presidency should be assumed by the president of the EFC. I said, okay, well, thank you very much. Yes, so I chaired those meetings. 
to the great surprise of everybody, we actually, because everybody said to me, okay, just hold tight until the end of January, until Thomas arrives, and then he will take over and finalize the negotiations. But to the great surprise of everybody and to the great pleasure of Thomas, he explicitly thanked me for taking that thorn out of his side. <laughs> we actually finished the negotiations in, I think it was three or four rounds. So by the end of January, we actually had the, at the technical level, the agreement on paper, the treaty on paper, and then it was finalized at the political level in two or three months later. But the underlying philosophy for this fiscal compact was that we needed an instrument that made the fiscal rules and fiscal rectitude more credible in the eyes of the public. And so it was decided at political level that, in actual fact, all the rules that we already had in the treaty and in the rules and regulations of the Stability and Growth Pact, that with some additional hocus-pocus had to be put into a new treaty, which would then have to be transposed into national legislation, because if it is ratified by national parliaments and in national procedures, somehow, for some miraculous reason, which I still don't understand today, but that's probably because I'm not a politician, but just a civil servant. But miraculously, apparently, if something is explicitly approved by a national parliament, it is more credible than something which is in the Treaty of the European Union, in the whole rulebook of the European Union, which I've heard lawyers saying that is of the same legal quality or even of a superior legal quality than national fiscal rules. Just the logic of the whole thing just escapes me and says that, well, if we need to resort to gimmicks like that in order to make those rules that we have back then credible, I mean, the whole mechanism to me is already incredible and how it just defies logic. And it's just, yes, it's the framework is a framework for fine weather monitoring of public finances but it is not a framework that is appropriate for enforcement of fiscal discipline. And also throughout the years that I was an observer of the scene, actually, yes, what it was useful for was to have a structured discussion on the trajectory of public finances in a broadly comparable way across member states and for the euro area or for the EU as a whole. So it was a good metastructure to be used in order to have discussion about public finances, but was it an instrument conducive to fiscal discipline or even for countries accepting that a reasonable and reasoned criticism of their national fiscal policy stance could be made by another institution or another country? No. I mean, as soon as either the Commission or another member state goes into questioning what you do at national level with your national fiscal policy, you go into utter defense mode and you say, none of your business. Yeah, I'm not here. You can look at my numbers, but you cannot discuss my numbers. So yes, I mean, like I said, for educational purposes, I think it's a useful concept. But for political purposes, I think it has very much failed to bring to the European Union and the Euro area toolbox what it was supposed to bring okay well on that happy note <laughs> we'll finish so george thank you very much 
Okay, thank you. Bye.